Go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. Picking it back up where we left off last week. Last week we were looking at the, uh, the fifth miracle that Jesus has recorded here in the Gospel of John. But now we're moving into really what is the meat and the purpose of this chapter, which is the bread of life discourse. Jesus talking about himself as the bread of life. But this whole chapter, this whole entire chapter, is really under this big umbrella of the differences between false and true disciples of Christ, or even just the existence of false disciples. What are they? What do they look like? John spends 71 verses to, in order to set this up and explain it clearly. But in this exact uh, scene that we're going to be looking at, we're just going to be looking at verses 22 through 35, or the first part of 35. In this exact scene, we, we have uh, an episode. Remember how we described it last week of the thread that connects all of these different episodes in John 6 together is false and true disciples, but there's different colored candy on that candy necklace. This is a different flavor right here, and it has to do with the idea of benevolence in ministry, and then how do we do those things? How does Jesus handle benevolence in such giving people material goods to meet physical needs. How should we, uh, the church, emulate him in this? So we're back here with the crowd. Last week we looked at the disciples, now we're here this morning with the crowd, the 20,000 who were fed, or at least a portion of them. And the disciples, while they were the focus last week, that from now on, the next 45 verses, they're gonna be silent. We're not gonna hear anything from, the again, uh, from them again until the very end of the chapter. So the lens is gonna turn back to the masses, the crowd that came to see him at the seashore. Why did they come? What did it say at the beginning of the chapter? It's because they had seen him do miracles. That's what it says. And then they partook in the massive miracle of the feeding of 20,000 people from nothing. And now they're back. They're coming back to see Jesus. The night has gone over the stormy seas. Now they're going to be coming back to see Jesus. And we'll see if their motives are worldly. And it brings us back to the original question we started out with. How do we handle meeting physical needs as the church, as the people of Christ? How do we faithfully address the spiritual and the physical? Because we cannot be divided as spiritual or physical beings. We are both inherent. And we're in this greater context of true and false disciples. So under this uh, true and false disciples, this idea of benevolence. We're going to look at the distinguishing uh, between true and false disciples uh, on the lines of how and why they approach Jesus. So let's look at verse 22 through 24. This is the crowd sought Jesus. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. So look at this scene. The crowd that Jesus had sent away is now back. They're back at the same place that they just got fed. 20,000 people of them got fed all they could eat of fish and bread. And so then they all show back up, and Jesus isn't there. And the boat that was there is gone. And they had seen the disciples get in the boat, and they knew Jesus didn't get in the boat. Remember, he went up on the mountain to pray. So they saw that happen. They're all leaving. Jesus goes up on the hill, the disciples get in the boat, it's the end of the day, and then now the boat's gone, and Jesus is gone. 
You're trying to figure all this out, trying to piece all of this together. What's what's the story going on? He's not on the hill, he's not on the shoreline. Where is he? There wasn't a second boat for him. So where is he? Verse 23. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So before they can really do much processing of the info that they're taking in, now they showed back up to the place, more people come. Boats are coming from the town of Tiberias, and they're showing up on the shoreline. And now they're there looking for Jesus. And seems that that word has gotten out and that something amazing happened. And so they're like, well, there's 20,000 people. We're probably not going to get a seat. Let's get in boats. Therefore, we're guaranteed a good seat to get up on the shore and be able to see what's going on over there. Now, John describes this before we move past this verse to kind of get the lay of the land. He says, it's the place. It's the place that what happens where they ate the bread. But also, what does it say? After the Lord had given thanks. That's the place it is. They've eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, is that a throwaway detail? I don't think it is. John Calvin didn't think it was. He thinks it takes. we should take it as instruction to the church that we're often so cold in prayer. I know I am so forgetful of prayer that John, that, uh, John the uh, disciple wants to say, make sure you remember this miracle happened after prayer. Jesus gave thanks to God. The Bible instructs us even when it's just describing a location. But verse 24, the story moves on. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now you can imagine the scene here. Groups of people start showing up back to the plot of dirt where the miracle had happened. And as more groups start coming, buzz starts percolating. And then as they're starting to get really like, what's going on? Where is he? We came and found him. All these boats start landing on the shore. And now they're like, we got to go and find him. Where they're, they're kind of getting to a fever pitch of percolation. It's like uh, when uh, fans of musicians, like when, when Elvis is leaving the building, everybody goes back to the loading dock behind the building. They want to see Elvis. But then it turns out he's not coming out the loading dock. He's going out the food service entry. So the horde now is turning the corner and running towards that door to get a hold of the guy. That's what you kind of have percolating right here, kind of buzzing right here. Now, we don't know their motives just yet. Verse 24 just says at the end they were seeking Jesus. John hasn't been explicit about their motives, but that sounds pretty good, right? Seeking Jesus. Verse 25, we're going to see them provoke Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now they went to Capernaum and that wasn't just a blind shot in the dark. That kind of had become Jesus's uh, home base of operations during this ministry up in Galilee. So it wasn't a wild shot in the dark. They went there on purpose. And when they get there, they talk to him and they find him. Obviously he wasn't hiding. He was pretty findable. Uh, and verse 59 later in the chapter says that Jesus said these things in the synagogue. So he's in the synagogue. When you're looking for the man of God, pretty good chance that he's where the people of God are gathered. So that's where they went. They found him. Now their question is of interest to us. It says, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now oftentimes when we study the Bible, what we need to consider to help us understand is what isn't being said. So what did these people not ask Jesus? They didn't ask, Rabbi, we've been talking all night. 
about you, about what happened. Can you tell us more about that? They didn't ask that. They didn't say, Rabbi, we experienced something otherworldly yesterday, and we know that nobody could do that if they weren't somehow special or sent from God or something. So can you explain more of who you are? That's not the question that they asked there either. They didn't say, Rabbi, we know, I mean, there was only one boat. And we saw the disciples get in and leave, and you didn't get in with them, so we got to ask, how did you get here? Something miraculous happened last night we don't know about. They didn't even ask that. Their question gives us a window into their main concern. The main concern was not the true identity of Jesus as, or his connection to God, nor was their main concern the nature of his miraculous power. How are you able to do what you do? That wasn't their main concern either it was when did you get here and how much of the show did we miss their their heart was we when do you travel because we need to be able to anticipate it better next time so when when did you go so next time we know where to where to start heading out or when to start heading out to the next place so that we can be there we, we want to eat our fill of bread and fish every day and when we don't know where you are or when you leave that makes it significantly less convenient for us. So tell us when you got here so that we know what to do for next time. Now, how do we know? That seems pretty cynical. How do we know that that's how what they were thinking? How do we know that that's the right understanding of their question? Because of Jesus' response. That's how we know. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Just like the Jews in the temple in chapter 2, and Nicodemus in chapter 3, the woman at the well in chapter 4, and the man with the sick and dying son in chapter 5, Jesus doesn't answer the question that they actually asked. And he, put, he cuts right to the heart issue. Doesn't even regard their question, just cuts right to the issue. No pleasantries, no cordiality, no fluff. He says, you want me because you got free food. That's what he says. Let's take note to observe that their desire is even more base than how it started. You remember how it started back in verse 2 when it says, And the large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. That was their original reason for coming. God, this is amazing that you can heal these people. At first, they were impressed by his ability. But now, their, their desire for him, their seeking him is even lower, even more base than that. Now they demand to, they, that he satisfy their urges. They marveled at his power then, and now they want to use him to satisfy their desires. At first, they wanted to be entertained by him, and now they just want to use him. That's where they are. I mean, I, the, the only way I could think about it to kind of communicate um, the, the grotesqueness, the audacity of this, is that if you, it's like a man who just hears a woman's beautiful voice and decides that he wants to pursue her romantically just because her voice is so beautiful, so soothing, so calming, so entertaining, so enlivening. He wants that. He doesn't want her, doesn't care anything about her yet, doesn't even know what she looks like yet, but just the ability that she has to sing, he wants that. But then 
she gets even worse when he sees her beauty now. And now she's beautiful. Now he doesn't even want her to sing or talk. He doesn't want to get to know her as a person. He only wants her for her beauty, for her body. That's it. It's got even more base than that. I used to love you for what you can do, and now I love you for what you can do for me instead of for who you are. That's what these people are doing. And Jesus knew it before they said anything. How did he know that? Go back to John 2. We keep going back. John 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, these people who saw miracles, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew before they said anything. He already knew. The other day we had friends over at our house. We were talking about some of the, uh, if you stop and think about it, some of the Christmas uh, conversation that's a little more creepy and deep state than you would think. Like, here comes Santa Claus. He's watching you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He can always see everything that you're doing. This bearded white man who lives far away. That's a little odd. Why are we singing that song? That sounds weird. It's a little creepy. Stalkery. But I really think maybe it's got to be some kind of substitute for God. Because Jesus actually does know everything that you're doing. And actually can see. And he's not a human being that just kind of just kind of reward you based on good or evil. He's God. And that's what he's displaying right here. He knew their heart before they said anything. And what we need to take from this too is that he knows exactly why we are coming to him. You know, we'd be fools and we would miss the little snippet here in this passage to think that, well, yeah, Jesus knew what those people, their motives were for coming to him, but he doesn't know my motives. He does know your motives. He knows exactly why you're coming to him, whether it's the right reasons or the wrong reasons. So just be honest now, because he already knows the truth. So, so just level with him. And engage your heart to truly submit to him. So not only did he know the hearts of the crowd members, but he pointed it out immediately. Yet another example of if we were to be like Jesus in this instance, we would get the ire and the hatred of the broader evangelical network in the United States. If we behaved exactly like Jesus, we would the, the church at large would be appalled at us. That if we knew someone's sinful motives for coming to church and said they were coming to Christ, and we called it out immediately, we would the, the church at large would hate us for that. But Jesus does this. He does it again and again and again. But then he says this in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And Jesus doesn't offer a rebuke and no truth. He doesn't do that. He didn't call out their sinful motives and then not address it. He, he didn't take away their physical bread and then not offer them eternal bread, life, eternal life bread. So even though this crowd is sinful and their motives for coming to him are selfish and twisted, Jesus still has mercy on them. Jesus still cares about them. He still wants to see them know the truth, embrace the truth, be saved from their sin. So he offers clarity. Uh, a lot of us, all of us are uh, in one of two camps. We're either adept at calling sin, sin for what it is, 
or we're really eager to offer hope. But Jesus here does both. And we need to do both. Because what good is calling sin, sin, and pointing out someone's hopelessness if you don't offer them any hope? But what good is also offering hope to people who don't know that their sinfulness has made them utterly hopeless? So you have to do both. That's what Jesus does here, and he models it perfectly. Or as Jesus is telling them that they have it all wrong. Their desires are not concurrent with their greatest need. He's saying, he's saying, friends, you don't know what it is you really need. You think what you need is to eat every day, and you don't really need that above all things. The greatest need is not another meal or unending meal physically to sustain their lives on earth. Your greatest need is something that can sustain your life eternally. What does he say in verse 27? The food that endures to eternal life. That food that endures, to, that endures to eternal life is dispensed by him only, by Christ only. He's the one the Father has sent. He's the one bearing the Father's seal as the only one who can offer life-giving, eternal life-giving bread. And Jesus is the only one who's been authorized to do that. That's what it means when it says the Father has set his seal on him. He's the only way. Who could miss that message? Verse 27, who could miss that message? He's been so lovingly clear, clear about sin, but also clear about sin's solution. And he even made a contextual analogy. He spoke their language. You hear about bread? Let me make an illustration out of bread. Let me make this an example, kind of contextualize. This is what you think you really need? You really need something better than bread. You need some super bread that can carry you over into eternal life. Bread that never fades and never ends so now the crowd do they get it or do they not verse 28 the crowd's going to challenge jesus for the next four verses then they said to him what must we do to be doing the works of god now the response displays a mixture of understanding and not understanding mostly not understanding jesus did indeed say don't work for earthly bread but for eternal bread but then he said that that bread is a gift from the Son of Man. So they latched onto the work, and they totally missed the gift part. So they, they have this understanding of, of work. What Jesus was communicating was the concept of the appropriate goal, not the appropriate means to whatever it is that you want. It's like, you, need, you have the wrong goal, guys. Friends, you, you, you want the wrong thing. And they hear, oh, you're talking about how I get to the thing that I want. Jesus is like, no, no, you, you, you want to go to the wrong destination. And they're like, okay, what road do we get on to get to the destination that we wanted to go to already? That's, they, they say, missed him. They miss it. And so this is what they say in effect. Okay, Jesus, we get it. First meal is free. And then after that, we got to do some religious stuff. That makes sense. So uh, just tell us what it is that we got to do, whatever the religious things are that we need to do, and then we'll do it so that we can get what we want. We can get the bread. Like, we, we get it. They're, they're coming out of a Jewish world of systematized legalism. So they get it. They understand how that works. It's ingrained in them that they have the innate ability to satisfy the demands of God. They think that they can do that. They're, they're convinced of that. And it works like this. Do stuff for God. God does stuff for you. That's what they've come from. So incentivizing external piety, meaning external holiness or, or righteousness, that was the name of the game in their world. 
to incentivize. That's what they think. Like, well, if I do these things for God, then he will do these things for me. There's an incentive there that gives me what I already naturally want. Now, if we're not careful, as a side note, we can do the same thing in the church. We can be evangelical. We can talk about the free gift of the gospel. But we can do the same thing by rewarding the performing of Christian disciplines. We can create a culture of circus sea lions. That's what we can do. What does a sea lion do at the circus? All right, trainer, tell me which horn to honk and in what order. Because all I want is that big old bucket of mackerel. And you want me to perform so that you look good. I just want the bucket of fish. So give me that. I'll honk whatever horn you want me to honk in order to get what I want. And we can do that here in the church, which is infinitely worse. So let's not bait and switch our kids, our teens, our young people, the adults. Do these things, and, with, and here's the reward, with faux rewards. I have had more conversations than I would care to have ever had with parents of kids who are either grown in college or adults or have their own kids. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. I mean, they don't love the Lord. They don't care about anything. And, and uh, man, they were in this program and they, they had so many awards for memorizing verses. And they, and they always won the races for Bible trivia, for these kinds of things. And, and I don't know what happened. And then now I'm in the awkward position to say, well, well, here's what happened. The gravy train ran out. You incentivized them their whole lives. Here, do these things, like study the Bible, like memorize verses, pray, read the Bible on your own, go to church, go to uh, mission trips. Do these things that are good. But if you go and do these things, I'll give you candy. Or if you do this many number of things, I'll buy you a basketball. Or if you do this, I'll pay for your gas for a month. And so you're incentivizing kids, teenagers, and then when the incentive runs out, then now they're out. You placated yourself for several years by thinking, these kids love the Lord. Look, man, they got all those Bible verses memorized. They know where all the books in the Bible are. They've been to all these mission trips. But it doesn't matter. Because they were doing it for the reward. They're just a circus sea lion. And that's what these people are coming to Jesus with the mindset of doing. Like, okay, we get it. Nobody really eats for free. But the new guy in town got to give away a sample so that then we can keep coming back, know that he's the real deal. So tell us what we got to do. We'll jump through the hoops. Just tell us which hoops and point us in the direction. But in verse 29, Jesus, the patient teacher, is going to clarify. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He says, friends, there's not a catalog of repeated religious works that you have to perform ad nauseum. That's not there. There's one work. He just uses their language because they said works, plural. He goes down to singular, work. This is it. It's not even a work, it's believe. That's what he says. He says, believe. Believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. God has one command for all people everywhere, all times. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the one thing. That's it. It's not a catalog of works we do end upon end upon end. That's what it takes to be given the food that endures to eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
whenever I'm interviewing a Christian, and I've done this through several different uh, contexts, whether it's getting hired at a Christian camp or being a volunteer in a ministry or somebody joining the church, all these different roles, and we always have them explain. I always have them explain the gospel. Tell me the gospel. You tell me the gospel. The person who usually has some kind of Christian background or some kind of something or been in the church for at least a little while, and they'll go along the lines and say, you know, Jesus died for our sins, or maybe even kind of the cliche, I asked Jesus into my heart, and, and they'll go all these things, and I'll let them, they'll run themselves all the way out and then say, is that it? And that always makes them squirm every time. Because they're like, well, and then they'll go, well, you know, and then you go to church, and then you got to pray, and then you got to do, and I'm like, that's not the gospel. The gospel is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And, and we, we feel uncomfortable very rarely. It's happened a few times, and the instances are burning in my brain where I say, is that it? After the person explains the gospel, and they say emphatically, yes, that is it. And I'm like, okay, welcome to whatever it is that we're doing. Because you got the gospel. And that just doesn't communicate to a world that's based upon everything based upon merit, which we live into somewhat, but the, the first century Jewish world is far more down that road. This crowd was prepared to do a bunch of works, plural. What a relief it would be for them to be told, there's no works that you can do. Just believe in the one that God the Father has sent. Believe in him. What a relief that, that the burden of you having to carry on your shoulders 613 Old Testament laws and always do them correctly, never mess them up, always have your days in order, all these things to say, no, 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 you don't have to do that. Jesus gets under that burden for you, does it all for you, and you believe in him. And that's how you have eternal life. All they have to do is believe. You'd think that they would love that burden being lifted, but look at verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? For what word do you perform? The best way to describe them is with the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And then verse 22 For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That's the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Corinth. And he says that's what the gospel is. It's something that, that works-oriented people trip over. You stumble over it because you want to keep going down your, your pathway, your road of earning your own salvation. So you just trip over Jesus like he's a rock in the middle of the path. And you demand a sign. Prove it. Prove it's what they say. Even their question proves their spiritual blindness. They have already seen, according to verse 2, this particular crowd has already seen multitudes of sick be healed. They've already seen that. Let alone the most massive miracle after to be recorded, as far as volumes of people involved, feeding of 20,000 people. And now you're saying, show us another sign? I mean, the audacity to ask that of Jesus. Are they serious? Show us another miracle so that we may believe in you. See, this is evidence of unbelief. That's what this is. Unbelief is continually demanding that God do stuff for you. That's not faith. 
That's unbelief. Demanding that God do stuff. Unbelief says, God, what have you done for me lately to maintain my loyalty to you? That's unbelief. Belief says, God, you have done everything for me in Christ. What could I possibly ask of you after that? Unbelief makes God man's servant. Belief, man, belief makes man God's servant. Unbelief is obsessed. Unbelief is obsessed with God satisfying man. But belief is obsessed with man glorifying God. As soon as Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do, he was no longer who they wanted. As soon as that happened. And Jesus himself, elsewhere in the scriptures, has harsh words for those who demand that God prove himself to man. Matthew 12, 38, 39. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, meaning a spiritually adulterous generation, speaks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Matthew 16, 1 and 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And then Jesus says in verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And meaning, no sign is going to be given to them except the Bible and the miracles recorded in the Bible. Jonah, for instance, is what he says. So they go on. This crowd goes on to display their spiritual blindness further. Verse 31. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus, what sign are you going to do? Uh, our fathers, our you know, biological predecessors, they with Moses ate manna in the wilderness. And so look, Jesus, if you want to prove to us that you're really like the prophet Moses talked about, the prophet that we said that you were back in verse 14, then you got to do for us what Moses did for our ancestors. You got to prove it. When they were fed, they were enthusiastic fans of Jesus. And when they're hungry, they challenged him and they demand that he prove himself to them. As soon as Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do, he was no longer their king. But fun fact, unbelievers never quote scripture appropriately. That's what just happened right there. They said, as it is written, but here's what they got wrong. Moses didn't make manna fall from heaven. God did. Two, Moses didn't win an election to be the ruler of the people of Israel. It was a divine appointment. Three, everyone who ever challenged Moses' authority and leadership was either killed, stricken with disease, or the earth opens up and swallows their entire family. Doesn't go well for them. Number four, the miracle of manna wasn't enough for those unbelievers either. They eventually said, we hate this food. Take us back to Egypt where we had meat and pots and we had all the food we wanted. So they're not quoting a good scripture in their own defense. How foolish they were to bring this up as an example. To say, Jesus, you are like Moses, and we're like the Israelites, you make us happy with effortless and bountiful food like Moses did, then we will follow you, and we'll let you lead us like our ancestors let Moses lead them. But they're so wrong. See, their ancestors hated Moses and rebelled against him constantly. Moses saved them from God's wrath several times, and other times Moses asked God to kill them all. Horrible example for them to bring up. And a grand display, though, coming up, of restraint and compassion 
Jesus is just going to slowly, calmly re-explain what he was saying. And they're going to misunderstand it, but he's going to explain. Look at verse 32. <clears throat> Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, we're wrong about Moses. You, you don't understand that correctly. He had no power. God merely just worked through him. And you're wrong about God's true purpose in giving the Israelites back in the book of Exodus manna. It wasn't so that they could just be happy and live their best life in the wilderness. It was so that they would recognize that life comes from God. I do nothing. And life comes from heaven, from God, a full reliance upon him. And Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of that type, of that shadow. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the real of what that was an example of. That was the shadow. I'm the actual thing casting the shadow. I'm the bread of God that comes down from heaven that gives life unending. And I give it not just to the Jews, not just to the Israelites, that one nation that comes out of Egypt. I give it to representatives of the whole world. The whole world. If Jesus were a mere man, he would not have been able to so calmly and compassionately explain himself for the third time to this very antagonistic crowd. If he were a mere man, he would have exploded over the insult and the audacity of the crowd, but he's not a mere man. He's the God-man. He's the perfect man who's truly God. And he lovingly explains the truth again and he makes no mention of their pride or foolishness. I find that to be unbelievable. Because isn't that what we constantly do to Jesus? Prove it to me again. I don't believe you'll provide for me again. I know you've done it my whole life, but I don't believe you here. He makes no mention of their sin, their pride, their foolishness. He just explains it to them calmly again. How do they receive it? Verse 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Okay, Jesus, we accept your alteration. We will allow you to feed us every day for the rest of our lives now. <laughs> How on earth are they back to physical bread? How? I mean, from the perspective of Jesus, this response has to be exponentially more maddening than Nicodemus going, well, then how am I supposed to jump back in my mom's womb? Or the woman at the well saying, I want that water that never makes me thirsty ever again, so I don't have to come and get water anymore. This has to be exponentially more frustrating as to him and from his perspective. Because Nicodemus and the woman at the well saw no miracles. They just had a conversation with one guy. This crowd has seen multitudes being healed and had themselves stuffed to the brim with food miraculously, and they still miss it. Their hearts are on full display here, and no one can miss the, what their hearts are saying. They want their best life now, and they think that Jesus is the fastest, easiest way to get that, to get what they want. And somehow when they heard Jesus say, I am the bread of God that comes down from heaven to give life eternal, it came across as, I consent to being your personal, unending welfare system. That's what they heard from what Jesus said. They're so dense and so deaf 
He has to club them over the head in the next verse. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. They're like, give us this bread. He's like, I've said it three times. I'm the bread. And he did it in, in ways he thought that, that, that uh, were going to be communicative, but now he just comes out and bluntly says, I am the bread. It's me. I'm talking about me. And now he starts the discourse that we'll pick up in later times, but this is the fourth time. Verse 27, 29, 33, 35. I am the bread. I am what you really need. The whole miracle that I did yesterday was for you to go, wow, <clears throat> you fed us over full. What could you do for our souls? If you could do that in an instant, what could you do for my soul eternally? That was what it was supposed to be, but they missed it. Now here's our takeaway. It is indeed possible for us as a church, for Christians anywhere, for our benevolence and the meeting of physical needs to lead to the blind being further blinded to the gospel. That is always a possibility. There will always be people who love us as Christians for what we do for them physically. But we can never be content just to feed and clothe people and allow them to continue in unbelief. John gives 71 verses of Jesus doing this very thing, not letting unbelievers continue in unbelief after he blesses them and sustains them physically for a day. He's 71 verses to that. If all we do is feed people and clothe people, we're merely making them temporarily comfortable before they go to eternal hell. That's all we're doing. And if you're going to hell, it doesn't matter if your belly is full one day or not. So then what do we do? How do we as a church apply this to us? Our evangelism is not evangelism if there is no gospel presented and a call to repentance. There's a great Christian bumper sticker that goes around all over the place to share. It says, share the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Well, if you're not using words, you have not shared the gospel. Because the gospel is necessarily words. I can't communicate, no matter how nice I am to you, in line at Walmart. You're never going to get, man, that person was really nice to me. You know what? I bet I'm a sinner. And I bet that I've offended a holy God with my sin and wretchedness. And I bet there's no other way for that to be remedied except through, he's got to be Trinity, so the second member had to have come down as the son, and then it's faith in, it's faith in him. That's what will save me. That's never happened to anybody ever. Should we be jerks? No, we shouldn't be jerks. Of course we should be nice and kind. But we have to speak words. But in speaking words, our passion for gospel proclamation and seeing souls saved must never negate the clear commands of the New Testament to meet physical needs as we can. Because the very Jesus who is, who is downplaying physical things here in John 6 says in Matthew 25, verse 31, that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king, meaning Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, 
you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, the sheep, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or stranger or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's Jesus' words. There's something to be said very clearly about meeting physical needs. So here's how it comes together. We can only really do evangelism properly with word, not just mere deed. And we can only really do faithful Christian deeds in the context of the church. It has to be done in the context of the church. James 2, 14 through 17 says, What good is it, my brothers? So he's talking to Christians. If someone says he has faith, but he has not works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warned to be filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself is dead if it does not have works. And then 1 John 3, 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you see the key word in those two verses? It says when you see a brother, when you see a sister, who are my brothers and who are my sisters? What did Jesus say? Those who do the will of God. Christians. This is talking about in the context of the local church. So this, these people that James and John are saying, do not do this, they're ignoring the needs of people inside the church. That's what brothers and sisters need. So if someone is unwilling to bow the knee and submit to Christ and then join the church, then all we're doing by perpetually feeding them, by perpetually clothing them, is making their lives more comfortable outside of the people of God. Outside of the love of God. That's what we're doing. They can live their entire lives getting free bread and never have to face their own sin and believe in the bread of God that comes down from heaven. So as the church that Jesus bought with his own blood, we need to make his philosophy of ministry to be our philosophy of ministry. And Jesus doesn't ignore the temporal uh, and the physical. Remember, it was his idea back in verse 5. Who, what did he say to Philip? How are we going to feed these people? It was his idea to feed those people. And he chose to spend an entire day feeding and healing people when he only had three years of ministry. Every day counts. you got to make it count. And he's, he chose to do that. That shouldn't be lost on us. So we don't want to say that 
caring for the physical needs of people has no value. It certainly has value. Jesus models that for us. But it must remain unflinchingly secondary to the primary mission of Christ's church, which is go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the primary mission. Calvin says it like this. Jesus doesn't forbid his followers to labor that they may procure daily food. But he shows that the heavenly life ought to be preferred to this earthly life. Because the godly have no other reason for living here than that. Being sojourners in the world that they may travel rapidly towards their heavenly home. That's why we're left here. Otherwise, if, why wouldn't we just baptize people and then hold them underwater? Send you home. Why? Why do we pull them back out? Because there's something for you to do. And for what you are to do is to make disciples of all nations. And when and if you can meet physical needs, then do that. But at the expense of the gospel, if Jesus pressed this issue, then we have to press it too. If he was concerned about the validity of seekers' motives, then we should be too. If he questioned the genuineness of faith of those who receive physical benefits, then we should be too. And it's not for any other purpose, but for their good and for the glory of God. Whatever doesn't lead to the salvation of human beings is not for their ultimate good. It's for the temporary good, maybe, but it's not for their ultimate good. And God's not glorified by false worship. So we live and minister and do church like Jesus did, for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. So Jesus did indeed feed that crowd. But then he said, you don't want me because you saw miracles and you understand what they really mean. You want me because you want free food forever. And Jesus does not going to let that go. And what we're going to see at the end of John chapter 6 is all of those people leave. They all leave. And Jesus doesn't say, come back, come back, come back, never mind. Okay, 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 okay. I'll do it. I'll feed you. I'll do it again. doesn't say that. He turns to his disciples and says, you want to leave too? So we have to model and emulate Christ that compassion does not exclude the physical, but the physical needs can never supersede the spiritual needs. We, we live like Christ because it's truly for that individual and for those, all those 20,000 individuals is for their eternal good. If you ask anybody who's passed on to the other side of life, would you rather have been full would you rather have known the gospel and repented and believed? They would say, forever, never give me that bread. Give me Christ. So that's what we offer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> we're again in awe and marveling at your son who comes and lives like we could never live and models for us a life so high that we fail to emulate all the time. But nevertheless, we ask for your strength for us as individuals and for us as a church, as a local body that has a witness in this community. We have a sign up on the wall outside that says we honor a faith Bible church. Each one of those words communicates something to a, walk, to a lost and dying world. Father, help us to be like Christ. Help us to be like Christ when it seems like everyone's really going to love us for it. But help us to be like Christ when it seems like the majority of people are not going to love us for it. Help us to never forget that we are sojourners here. 
that this is not our home. We're pilgrims, we're travelers, we're strangers and aliens. This is not our home. So forgive us for when we treat it like it is and we carve out little kingdoms and empires for ourselves. Or not that we, we hear you condemning us for having houses to live in and food to have and to share and, and uh, vacations and those kinds of things, Lord, but, but when we live for those things, we don't want to maintain that lifestyle. Let us hear what Jesus said, to strive, to desire, to hunger the bread that leads to eternal life. And to know that that's you. And that it doesn't count on our striving, our laboring, our white-knuckle discipline, bearing down and making it happen by being good enough and doing right enough. That's letting all that go coming empty-handed to the foot of the cross and saying, not my works, but yours alone. I have no hope. Save me from my sins. To know that the Savior who hung on that cross, who lay in that tomb and rose again, will indeed save us. And may we walk in faithfulness after that moment. Walk in a way that is pleasing to you. And walk in a way that others are... are stricken by how differently we live. Stricken for the bad and then hopefully stricken for the good. That they're appalled and then now they're appealing. Let us be that. That by our love, people will know that we are your disciples. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessing of keeping the water turned on. A minor uh, inconvenience, but nevertheless uh, a problem to deal with and you just handle it by sending rain. And only you can make it rain. No matter how hard we strive or dance around or throw stuff into the sky, you can't make it rain. That's you. So thank you for that, Lord, your gracious and your kindness to us. And even in little things like that, we acknowledge that that was you, not us. Lord, bless us this week. In Christ's name.